Welcome to our continuing series, uh, Jewish Mysticism and the Spiritual Life. That's the book that we're using, which is um, edited by Lawrence Fine, Eitan Fishbane, and Or Rose, and it can be found at Jewish Lights Publishing. So we've made our way miraculously almost to the end of the book. We're in the last section of the book for those of you who have been studying with us. If you want to hear uh, sections of the earlier parts of the book and you weren't with us, it is online as a podcast. So at iTunes and or you go to our website and under the learning tab, you just find podcasts and you can find Torah study, Rabbi Renner's classes on Talmud, this class, whatever you want to study that we have been learning together here at KI. So because we're resuming, but it's been a big break, a big hiatus, I know that there's always a new wave of people who join this class. So I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. It's like when they say, you know, if you're intending to go to Denver, you're on the right flight. If not, right? So like, don't feel bad if like you miss understood what this was about. Just hang with us. Uh, But I want to be clear what it is and what it's not that we're doing tonight. So this is not an introduction to mysticism class. This is a class dealing with Hasidic texts, for the most part, that are rooted themselves in ideas that come from Jewish mysticism. So Kabbalah, we know, means the great reception of lots of different ideas and lots of different teachings from many different teachers. It's not a work. It's not even really just one body of work. Kabbalah refers in general to this idea of passing on that which has been received from a teacher, passing that on, and now the students receive. So you are essentially doing Kabbalah, right? You are doing receiving, as am I from you, Uh, and all of us from the tradition as it's been interpolated. So Hasidism takes the texts and the ideas of mysticism and tries to put them into everyday practice and everyday life. Most of the texts that we have that are Hasidic texts um, are not exactly written by the teacher they are attributed to. We are used to picking up a book and reading a book by the author of that book, who's also the author of the ideas. That's not how it tended to work with the Hasidic masters. The students would sit at the master's feet. They would digest what the master had taught, the Rebbe had taught. Uh, And then often the students, once the teacher had become beloved, the students would take their notes and write a book and attribute it to their master. So we're not usually getting the actual words of the teacher. We're getting the words of the students as they understood the words of the teacher. So already we're a few steps removed. And then remember that these are people who are experts in Kabbalistic texts. They're experts in the code, the language of Kabbalah. We are not. So we're getting the notes on the master explicating terms that everyone's familiar with that we don't know about ideas that are esoteric and difficult and abstract to begin with. So we're sitting over there on the far right with stuff that begins over here right on the far left. And, and so we're working our way through that chain together. And, and all that you need to commit to is taking what you take from tonight. 
This is not a class where, you know, the idea is you understand everything as well as everybody else. And, like, the idea is you're here. You have busy lives. You've driven. You've put this on your calendars. You've carved out this time to be together in sacred space to learn sacred texts that are about sacred ideas and ideals. That would be enough. Dayenu. If there's one thing you take from tonight that makes you go, huh, I never exactly thought about that that way before. Dayenu. Like, what a wonderful and amazing thing. Anything past there is icing, gravy. So with that said, um, we've done a lot of texts, and if you're used to working through these texts with me, when you read them at home, you go, huh? And you know it's going to be okay, right? That we're going to sit together, and we're going to do this together. And by the end of it, you have some idea, oh, now I get it. That's what that meant. Okay, that might not be the case tonight. (laughs) So let me just say, this is an incredibly dense text. It's a really long, dense text that's about really big and really deep ideas within Lurianic Kabbalah, the Kabbalah of the, uh, of the Ari, of Rabbi Isaac Luria. I don't know that we're going to make it through the entire thing tonight. That's okay. I want you to treat this more, I guess, as Torah study tonight, and we'll get where we get. And we'll pick it up next time if we don't get through it. I, usually I know that we're going to get through the unit and I have a beginning and an end in mind. Tonight I really don't know where we'll get. But that's kind of the fun of this. That's kind of the mystery of this. So those of you listening to the podcast, <laughs> now um, if it feels like it's not quite complete, listen to the next podcast. So for those of you who have the text, we're on page 171 of... Jewish mysticism and the spiritual life. I'm going to pass around the text for those of you who don't have the text. And as always, we're getting a piece of Hasidism, a piece from Hasidism, and then a commentary by a contemporary scholar who helps unpack the Hasidic text, which already is too obscure because we don't know the language. It's too obscure for us to really access. And because this is heady stuff, we unpack the unpacker. We're here to unpack the unpacker. We're going to consider this an adventure, a sacred opportunity to engage together in some really amazing, amazing material. This actually, even though it's at the end of the book, it harkens back to some of the most fundamental of Kabbalistic concepts. Fundamental does not mean easy or simple, right? When we talk about fundamentals, we're not talking simple. We're talking basic, meaning everything else builds from there. But they're complicated deep, esoteric concepts that we're going to be dealing with tonight. So everything you know, because we're starting Breshit, 
we're starting Genesis, right? This week, we're after Simchas Torah, we're beginning the whole book, the whole cycle of reading Torah again. We're starting at creation. We're starting at Breshit. How wonderful. If you know anything about that story and you love that story and you know wonderful commentaries and insights about that story, terrific. Forget them all. Forget them all. Put them all away. Put them all aside. The Lurianic Kabbalah has a completely different understanding of cosmology, has a different understanding of how the universe came to be, or at least a different set of metaphors and languages for uh, language images for talking about it. So set aside, Breshit. We're going to a whole new Jewish way of talking about the beginnings of, of existence. Okay? Take your mind, if you will, your heart is probably a better place to start, to pre-Big Bang. Maria just goes, <laughs> right? <laughs> Pre-Big Bang is where we start. Okay? That's where we're going to start. Let's look at page 171, and we're going to work our way through the text, and we'll see how far we get as we start to explicate it and the unpacking of it by our scholar, Chaviva Padaya. And the text that we're going to quote right now, that we're going to read from right now, is from Rebbe Nachman of Bratslav, the Bratslava Rebbe, from his work Likute Moharan, or actually, again, um, talks that he gave that then are distilled into words by students. All right, so Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav, his text, who knows anything about Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav? I just want a couple of facts. Usually I don't do this about who the person is. In this case, I think it's important. Anybody know anything about Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav? Late 18th century. Okay. Ukraine. 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 Okay. Your mom would have said he's a big rabbi, Reuben says. He was a big macher. Right. He died young. Died in his... 39? Yeah, like, or barely 40. And before that, right as this text is being written, his son has died. His mother dies, right? And that's a huge trauma for him because remember, he's a young man, so his mother's not that old, presumably, especially when you have children really young. His mother's maybe 60-something. And he suffered from what we think is bipolar issues that resulted in manic highs and deep, 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 existentially crisis-oriented lows. Anything that man says to me about suffering has a ring of authority. Yes? Lots of people can theorize about suffering and, and, and not that some are more or less valid. Someone who walks every single day through deep, deep suffering is a person of faith, learned in that faith, and himself dealing with the fact that he, he doesn't even make it past, right? You know, early adulthood, it has a lot of authority for me. I'm ready to give wide berth to whatever he says. Even if initially I go, what? 
I'm, I'm ready to like set aside some of my stuff and say, let me just deeply listen and see if I can't understand something about what he's coming to teach out of what I believe is his own deep pain, as does our commentator, right? Chaviva also believes that, um, Chaviva Padaya also believes that, um, that this teaching, she's, or uh, he actually, don't know. Oh, she, she's going to teach a radically kind of interestingly twisted new idea about his text based on his life and based on his, his very intimate relationship with suffering. So let's go there. All right. This is Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav. And when the Blessed One wanted to create the world, page 171, he had no place to create it because everything was infinite. Therefore, he contracted tzimtzim, the light, to the sides. And by that contraction, tzimtzum, vacant space was created. The vacant space had to exist for the creation of the world. Because without that vacant space, there would have been no place for the creation of the world. This tzimtzum of the available space cannot be understood or grasped. We could just put a period right there. I want you to, in some ways, put a period right there. Because anything else he says now, right, is mitigating. Or the fact that really what he's saying is we can't understand what that means. And, I'll, and we'll get to why we can't understand it, right? Um, but we, we, we can't understand it. Till future times means until we are radically altered and radically different because our brains just simply can't access the truth of this and the reality of this because two opposite things must be said about it. Existence and nothingness at the same time. So our brains go, can't be. You can't have yesh and ayin, existence and nothingness at the same time. Duh. Those are opposites of each other. The vacant space is made by tzimtzum, by this contraction, and we're going to talk about that, which is ostensibly the tzimtzum of the divinity, right? The contraction of the divinity, because there is, as it were, no divinity there. God contracts to leave room for the world to exist, and by doing so, that means that there isn't divinity there, because God contracts out of that place, as it were, so that there's room for the universe to exist. We're going we're gonna to stay here. Don't worry about it. We're going to come back to it. For otherwise, it would not be vacant, right? If, if divinity didn't leave that space, it wouldn't be vacant. And since everything is infinite, there would be no place for the creation of the world at all. Okay, that's fine. But, here comes a but, really? But? But... In absolute truth, there is divinity there nevertheless, because certainly there's no thing without it, and therefore it is impossible to grasp the existence of a vacant space at all until the future. All right, so, Lorianic Kabbalah. Forget what you know about Genesis. Someone said about this tohu vavohu. Okay, we'll carry that over from Genesis. Tovavohu. What does tovavohu mean? Pre-creation state of things. Now, because we know nothing about what that is, we don't have language for how to translate tovavohu. 
Like if, and I love looking at different translations. I want to make a poster, like, you know, um, with all of the words that, that all the translations use for tohu vavohu. Absolute nothingness. Well, not exactly, because there's something there before that. It's called the ensof, the one without limit, the one without end. Nothingness, capital N, God. So it's not that there's nothing, absolute nothingness. But what is it if it's not it? Because there's no it yet until there's existence. And there's no existence till creation. So what is this? So I love any attempt to translate tova vohu. It's pre-Big Bang. You find the words for that. I don't have them. All right. So that's what this is my lovely rendering here. Because I'm... I'm very artistic, as you'll come to learn if you study with me. Very, very artistic. <laughs> is that um, this is my representation of Ein Sof. Limitlessness. Nothingness, capital N, which means infinite presence of the divine. The divine is infinite. Fills, is everything. So how can there be a world that involves limitation in this. There can't be, says our text, right? Luriana Kabbalah says, there's no way within infinity and the infinite to have finitude. So what has to happen? If it's all God and infinite light and that fills everything that isn't? I like that. Everything that isn't is what this is. Fine, but it's not void. It this God, it isn't void. It's void of materialism. I mean, I mean the material world. It's not void. It's Ein Sof. There's a difference. We're going to get to void. For, I, I'm not. I'm not arguing with you. I'm saying he. They're going to make a distinction between void and this. This is everything is full. Capital F. Everything, capital E, is full, capital F, of infinity, capital I. It's all the divine. It's all endless. And it's all nothing. How do you have something within that? You can't if infinitude is the only thing that is. There has to be something else, something new, something that isn't infinite light filling everything. So, says Lorianic Kabbalah, God, for reasons we do not know, but it is, according to Kabbalah and the flavor of it, a loving act. God withdraws. God's self. From a bit of this infinitude, God withdraws, leaving a space for the universe to exist, leaving room within infinitude for a new possibility, finitude, material, that which will begin, that which will end, us, right? That is what is created through this loving act of God kind of sucking God's self to the sides, right? And leaving in that, that space room for 
creation. This is classic Lorianic Kabbalah. There is nothing Rabbi Nachman is saying that every Kabbalist does not already know and already accept. So just go with me. This is, this is like reading fiction in, in literature in terms of this is the willing suspension of disbelief. We don't have to believe this is what happened. In order to understand anything about what he's going to talk to us about that could have deep resonances for us, we have to accept this as the premise. Just for play. Just for fun. It's really difficult, brain-smashing fun, but okay. (laughs) So that's the Kabbalistic understanding. God withdraws out of a loving desire to have something here that's not itself, that's not God, exactly. It's not going to be devoid of God because that couldn't be, God forbid. Maloko haaretz kavodo. Everything is filled with God's presence and God's glory. So it can't be devoid of God, God forbid, but it's not exactly all God all the time. So let's go to the next part. We're, we're, we're all good with this? Are we all clear on this? <laughs> yeah? Prick crystal. Okay, good. But really, we're, if, if we willingly suspend our disbelief, we, we can accept this as we get what, what he's talking about, right? That this is the idea of creation? Okay. And you must know, here comes, here comes Rabbi Nachman, that there are two kinds of apikorsut. So apikoris is a heretic. And apikoris is a heretic. Apikorsut, heresy. Meaning... You're going to say something that is completely out of line with what Judaism believes. In their case, traditional Judaism believes, right? In rabbinical school, we had a little rabbinical student choir, and we called ourselves the Apichorus. Now you'll understand so much deeper humor. The Apichorus, because, right, Apichorus means, you know, that's heresy, means like, you know, you're written off because you, you are too far out there, and now you're challenging some of the fundamentals that now we're going to be threatening to, you know, the Jewish thinking of the time. So we have to, some of us, step away from our associations with that term to go where our teacher's going to go, to go where Chaviva Padaya is going to go. We have to stop, step away from our sting, some of us, of, what do you mean heresy, right? Because I've been a heretic for a long time. I've been a heretic since at least 15 in a yeshiva setting, right? So that still, on some level, stings for me. Even seeing the word, like I have all of this kind of reactivity. If we could just let that go, because um, Chaviva Padaya is going to completely reinterpret what that means, apikoros, heresy. Completely reinterpret it in a way that I think is profoundly important and really beautiful. So, but there, so let's just say, instead of using the word heretic, which for me has a lot of charge behind it, let's just say disbelief, meaning I'm not in line exactly with what the party line of traditional Judaism says about something, anything. In this case, it's going to be about suffering, right? So without any judgment, just kind of, I don't buy it, right? Just somebody says, I don't buy it. No judgment, no sting, no stuff attached to it, just I don't buy it. 
whatever the party line is. It's God's will. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. It's for a purpose. Your life has a purpose and that's why this is happening to you, right? Anybody who says to any one of those things, I don't buy it, let's just call that apicorus disbelief, meaning in that that's true. All right. There are two kinds of disbelief in whatever you're going to be told in reference to trauma or suffering, it turns out. But not for Rabbi Nachman. Rabbi Nachman is not talking about suffering. He's talking about there's two kinds of kind of like, I don't buy it. One is from the external sciences, which come from permissible things, from the aspect of the breaking of the vessels. Anybody know anything about Shvirat HaKelim? The breaking of the vessels in, in Kabbalah? Well, there were 10 of them. <laughs> Hmm? Lovely. All right. What is all this? Light, right? So if we understand all of this as light somehow, this, this all is God, God is everything, God is all of it. If we understand that as, let's just use the, the metaphor of light to describe that. For the Kabbalists, for Lurianic Kabbalah, the creation of the universe has God do tzimtzum, contract God's self lovingly out of the way so that creation has room to exist. I kind of think of what happened to my organs during pregnancy (laughs) as an example. Like one time I went to the doctor when I was about eight months pregnant and I said, where exactly looking at that poster on your wall of the fetus taking up like the whole inner cavity, where exactly is my pancreas right now? <laughs> she said, you do not want to know the answer to that question. So, but that, right, we lovingly contract ourselves to the side and smash organs against rib cages to leave room for something to gestate and something to be born that is of us, filled with us, made of us, but is not us, is something entirely new. Okay, so if we hold that image, now when, you, you can't have just that be the case forever, God forbid, because the ain't so nothingness, the, the infinite only one, wants relationship with this thing. In our case, it comes out, right? (laughs) Not in this case. In this case, it, capital I, has to come in. By definition, does that make sense? The baby, in our case, comes out. But that doesn't happen with the idea of God contracting God's self to the sides, then there's this creation business. The, the creation can't leave infinitude. The creation's within it. It's going to stay there. So that means if God wants to be in close proximity, in relationship, part of, in, with, of this business, which was the idea of it in the first place, according to Kabbalah, it has to pour itself back into the hole, right? Imagine you pull the drain on the bathtub. The water goes... <laughs> now imagine if the pipes are made of parchment paper. I'm just coming up with this on the spot, so bear with me. 
all that water, right, goes, <laughs> what happens to parchment paper pipes? <laughs> all right. That's the idea. In Lorianic Kabbalah, God's light seeks to pour back in to the space that it vacated out of love. And there were, there were vessels, kalim, vessels that were supposed to kind of hang on to the light, to manage the light, to like kind of bring it back into the storeroom, right? Like, um, and because of the rush of divine light, there's a cosmic accident. And all of the vessels blow apart. They can't handle the rush of light. The parchment paper pipes blow apart. They can't handle the rush of divine light back into this space. So, what does that mean? That means you have shards of the vessel. Wait, no, we need a different color. That's going to get confusing. As if it isn't right already. Um, There are shards then of these vessels containing the divine light. There are shards of these vessels with a spark of the divine light everywhere that fall into this space. And a lot of them remain outside the space. So you have, you have fragments of vessels, which in their language is called klipot, shells, sh- um, husks. What do you call the outside of a coconut? Um, what do you call the outside of a cantaloupe? So think husk, rind, right? That it still has fruit on it. Like it has membranous, mem- membranous? membrane, right? Of fr- and then it has actual fruit and some liquid. Like it, it, the clipot, the, the shards, the solid stuff takes with it some of the essence, some of the fruit. That's what happens with the fragments of the vessels. They take with them the sparks of divine light called netzotzot by the Kabbalists. This is why I'm not sure we're going to get through all the material tonight. Because for some of you, this is an entirely new understanding of how the world came to be. For some of us, it's like, well, of course. This is how it came to be. All right. The, The idea is our job, we contain divine light. We are part of the divine. We are also in relationship to this other material world. Our design, our, our purpose, correct, is to do tikkun. What is tikkun? The repair. We're supposed to put all of the pieces you see in archaeology where they take all those crazy amounts of shards and they somehow figure out how they go back together into an amphora. Like, really? 
or the Qumran scrolls, right? These teeny tiny little disintegrated pieces and they put it back to, how do they do that? That is incredibly hard. It's incredibly complicated. How do you figure out which piece is supposed to go where? How do you know where it connects? You need a like thing up against your eye, you need a microscope and you need this, and the little tweezers and then you need special conditions so that the text doesn't dissolve even as you try to do it. Tikkun isn't easy. It's not meant to be easy. That's not the point. The point is there are fragments everywhere. Our job is to interact with the material world in such a way as human beings that we liberate the spark within the klipa, within the husk, and that spark goes back up. If we're going to do up, down, in, out, right? It, if you're doing in, we have in, out, So it goes from in to out and is reunited and you've just put two puzzle pieces together. We're repairing and what do we usually talk about? We usually talk about tikkun what? We usually talk about tikkun olam, the repair of this world. Really, and this is a radical statement, we'll see how many calls and letters we get in response to it on the podcast. I'm going to suggest, and a lot of the Kabbalists I think really are about, we're not doing tikkun olam for its sake. We're doing tikkun yudhe We are putting God back together. There was a cosmic accident, and divine light shattered these vessels, and the nitzatzot of God got trapped in the husk. Our job is to peel God off the rind and liberate it back to God. We're repairing God. (laughs) Right? God exists everywhere. And God will rule to allow the space to be filled with godliness by eventually returning into that space the remainder of God is still outside, right? So why are we trying to expel what's within this world back into the infinite nothingness, if you will, and repair God when God, in fact, created us? God is the one who shattered. shattered No, it's it's a really good question. If God shattered, but God's still here, who cares that God is inside the husk? Why not leave God there? We like God here, thank you very much. We like God in the pieces. We like God in this hunk of wood right here. Thank you. I don't want to liberate God out of there because the absence of that unity of God's self, capital S, of those sparks is what causes suffering. So the, the, the shattering in some way contributes to a reality that is about the husks and not about divinity. And when it's about the husk, that's about suffering. That's why it's tikkun olam. That when we interact with the material world in such a way that we're trying to release the divinity within it, we contribute to a lessening of suffering and an increase of holiness in our world. So, and the other thing I want to say to that is, and thank you for bringing it up, it's a beautiful question that's making um, my head hurt just a little bit, uh, which is good. 
When it goes out here, it doesn't disappear and leave because there's always an inpouring of shefa. The divine overflow is always coming back into the world. So every time we release a bit of God back out, it increases the flow of God back in, but in a way that's whole, in a way that's about chen and chesed and forgiveness and love and whatever, and can leave the klipa behind of envy and suffering and greed and Look, I, I'm not an expert in Kabbalah, so I'm probably not going to give the best answer to what you've asked, which is a really deep esoteric question, which I would give anything for you to go research and come back, having read a lot. <laughs> Richard, would you go look that up okay. and solve it for us by ne- next time? Um, so it's, they, as much as this is a system, it kind of isn't a system. Like it isn't like, It isn't like a mathematical equation where everything exactly fits in. There's lots of interpretations. There's lots of what exactly are the shards? What exactly are the vessels? What exactly does tikkun mean? You know what I mean? Discuss with me what evil means. I mean, there's, there's lots of different discussions about it. So it's not, it's not exactly a two plus two is four system. And I'm not an expert. So that's as far as I can get. Of course. Thank you for that question. By doing Tikkun, aren't we in fact trying to create an impossible repair job? If God pours back in again, the vessels would shatter again. So, so the, the shattering happened once. That's a kind of cosmic event. So that, that, that won't happen again. They're broken. They're gone. Like, they're, that happened. So our job is to, in other words, when we interact with food, if we say a bracha, and we approach eating that food with gratitude and mindfulness, we liberate the spark of that food, and that contributes to the divine overflow in the world. If we just eat it, gluttonously in front of the television and pay absolutely no attention or whatever, then it's just us eating food. It, it doesn't do that act of increasing the flow of the divine into the world. That, that's my best understanding of how they understand this. All right. What? Yes? Something? Linda? I don't know how to explain what I'm thinking about this, but... It's, well, really? Yeah. It's, it's hard for you to find words exactly for what you're thinking about this? <laughs> clear that in my head. I don't understand what I'm thinking about this, but to me it would be a constant flow in and out. It, there, there wouldn't be just a, a one-time explosion, if you will, um, that, that that keeps things going. Um, there is an ever, yes, there is a cycle of always in and out, back and forth, and the more the flow happens, the better. There was a once upon a time explosion, call it the Big Bang. Okay. No, uh, right, truly, like if, when I try to think about it, it's like there's the Big Bang. Now, the energy, matter, none of it stops. It's infinite how it keeps recycling itself into other things, right? But we do really accept that there was a once upon a time event called the Big Bang. Since then, there's time. Since then, there's a then and a since. And since then, nothing's ever going to go away entirely. It'll just be reformed and reshaped. That's what we're dealing with here. 
Does that, does that make sense? I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know. So, in other words, the once upon a time event is the fact that it exists at all. The Big Bang, right, is an idea that there was a reality that isn't the one we know, or many realities, because there may, may be many realities now, which is kind of like frightening thing, um, but, and a good thing. But so, but there was a once upon a time event that, that caused, and I'm going to use that, I'm going to put that in quotes, because so I don't even know what that means, caused the system to be in place that we now know, which is that there's matter and energy and la 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 that keeps reformulating itself into planets and stars and galaxies and humans and trees and puppies and rainbows. And that's going to go on infinitely, I hope, we imagine, but that started with the Big Bang. That's what this is. This is the Big Bang of Kabbalah, and then forever, the cycle is God is filling the universe. We contribute to how much that happens by what we do, and we want that to be in a, a feedback loop forever. That's a good thing, right? This is, but this isn't science. No, this is not science, God forbid. It's about our relationship, our existence. Correct. It is one set of symbols and metaphors to point at that which is ultimately ineffable. That's what religion is, and ultimately, I believe that's what science is. You know, science loves to say energy equal, blah, blah, blah. Really? Mm -hmm. Really? It's all random letters we assign to random concepts that we have about what we perceive of as energy. Who knows what energy really is, capital R, right? We're locked into the boxes of our five senses. That's all we can ever do and process it through this very limited computer called our brains. Do we believe really, anyone in this room, really believe that is the that is all there is, is what we perceive, and we translate then into numbers and symbols and like, right, right. Of course not. So we just don't have words for it. We don't even have words for what we have. We just assign words to it. So we're, they're assigning their words to reality and how they understand it. To came, but that's not what we're here to talk about, really. We're on page 172. Top, we've gotten through one paragraph, people. <laughs> <laughs> One paragraph. Not even, exactly. All right. So now we're talking about two kinds of disbelief, two kinds of apikorsut. One comes from the aspect of the breaking of the vessels. That's why I had to talk about this for a minute. Because one kind of disbelief is about this. It's, it comes from the breaking of the vessel. So it's related to each of these pieces. Bert, you may have to post a picture of this uh, very artistic diagram for people who are listening, because otherwise it may not make a lot of sense. Um, does, does that, so are, we, are you clear on, on what I'm saying? That one kind of apikorsu disbelief comes from a relationship to the shards, to the brokenness, that has pieces to it. For due to the abundance of light, the vessels are broken, yada, 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 go on to, and therefore, whoever falls into that apikorsut, that disbelief, we'll say, is able to find rescue. The good news is, 
and leave that place. For since they come from the breaking of the vessels, there are some sparks of sanctity there, and some letters were broken and fell into there, as it is known. The person can therefore find divinity there and the wisdom to resolve the difficulties of that apikorsut. All right. What, what is that saying? Turn to page 175. <clears throat> Our commentator states, if you look at the, the first full paragraph on page 175, following that, you see that paragraph that starts following that? Yep. I will propose that, in fact, we have two different paradigms for coping with suffering. So, apikorsut, our author is translating into suffering. Disbelief that, that is, what is, it's a symptom of suffering, right? I can't buy any of this because I am in pain. My world has shattered. Don't sell me any of this. It's all God and God is in us. And God, yeah, what? What? I don't buy it. That comes from pain. That comes from trauma. That comes from suffering. Because when we're not in that place, we're like, okay, God's infinite loving patience fills the world, and I love that. And like puppies and rainbows and kittens are so, aren't it wonderful that they exist at all? Aren't they a miracle? When we're suffering, we're like, don't even start with me about it, right? So if we go there, now, now do you see the relationship between suffering and disbelief? You know, that, that, that any of this matters, that any of this is real, and who cares? All right. So the first one is the paradigm of breakdown. That's shvira, this breaking related to the vessels, related to the shards. It is connected to the struggle with a crisis that can be the basis for change, enabling the discovery of an advantage or solution. A situation in which, within a certain collapse that took place in life, there is still open contact with the remnants of the explosion, of the crisis. Language remains, even if it is broken. That's the first paradigm. As long as we have clipot. As long as there are shards on the floor, there's something for me to address. The vase is broken. The vessel's broken. The situation's broken. But there's a way for me to talk about, uh, look at that, that's the handle. It fell off in one whole piece. That's the foot, though. Look at it. It's smashed into 300 pieces. How can that be? It fell from the same height, right? There's something to talk about. There's a reference point. There's language. And remember for the Kabbalists, as for the rabbis, as for Torah, well, I'm not sure about Torah, but for the rabbis and the Kabbalists, how was the world created? Literally, how was it created in Genesis? With the word. With the word. Vayi the world is created through speech. What language? Hebrew. Of course. So the holy language, right? It's created through the holy speech of Hebrew, and the speech is made up of letters. 
The whole universe is created through letters. If there are letters around, we can put them together, right? You remember those, those poetry, those little words of poetry that came in a magnetic kit? The box was like poetry that had been smashed into a million pieces, well, into a hundred pieces that were magnetized and put in a box that you give as presents. What do you do with those? What was the practice? Why, why do people give them to you? To put them together the way that they had been originally? There is no necessarily. There, they never, right? They, but even, let's say they had been one piece of sonnet of Shakespeare. The idea was never to put back the sonnet, the sonnet of Shakespeare. The idea was you were given these pieces by somebody to say, play, have fun, dig, throw them up there in random order, and then move them around of a Thursday afternoon. While you're on the phone with a really annoying client... Move them around in frustration. As long as there's something to work with, you can move them around and the meaning changes. But there's something to work with. Right? That's the first kind. What? The chart? The shards, yes, the shards. So let's go back to our original piece. I'm flipping back. This is a hard one for me to figure out the logistics of, but go back to 172. Right? Because now we're going to go to the second one. To the middle of that paragraph. Oh, no. Yeah, exactly what you said to however. We're going to that second paragraph. However, there is another kind of apikorsut. And these are the wisdoms that are not wisdom. But because they are deep and people do not grasp them, they seem to be wisdom. And what I think of here sometimes is like spiritual junk food. It all happens for a reason, Rabbi. I one time asked a new age friend of mine who had an explanation for everything and all suffering, and I love her dearly. To this day, I adore her. And I, we got into it one night, and I'd had enough wine that I didn't leave it alone. You ever been there? And I dug in, and then I dug in harder, and then I threw out the Auschwitz card. And I said, if, if all suffering is because people need to move to a higher vibration, what do you do with Auschwitz? A, an eight-year-old left for dead, raped by her father and left in the woods. A little boy, trafficked. I mean, wh- wh- now what are you going to say? And I swear to you, she looked me right in the face. She said, their souls were ready. And needed to move to a higher vibration. That, <laughs> I was like, I went postal. That's another conversation. But, um, but that's, for me, that's what this is talking about. Wisdom that's not wisdom. But, but because it sounds so deep, and I would say, because we want so badly to have an answer, it sounds like wisdom. Like, oh, yeah, me. You, you want so bad to believe, but you know somewhere that just, right? Like, really? Okay, so. But maybe, maybe the 
that a person can have effect in repairing somebody who has been ill or who has suffered, maybe that is enough to give us the spiritual satisfaction of repairing. Right. So I, I want to hold that for a second. Sarah, will you help me remember to go back there? Because that's not what he's talking about here. And I just want to make it through this thought because because <laughs> I will get lost very quickly, ADD person that I am. But hold that. that hold that idea of what we can actually affect and what that means in terms of tikkun and what that means for us because it's important. It's really important. He's talking about a second kind of apikorsut, a disbelief that comes from the realm of sounds like wisdom, sounds really deep, but isn't really? Why? And in truth, it is possible to resolve those difficulties, not the ones dealing with shards, not the ones of a broken marriage. Those are hard. Those are hard. We're not saying it's not hard, right? Or an incapacitating injury. We're not saying it's not hard, but there are shards, there's language. There's something to deal with that can be transformative. We're talking about category number two, which is it's impossible to resolve those difficulties because the difficulties of that apikorsut come from the vacant space. And there in the vacant space where all this started, when God first, not that we can use temporal language, but when, where God first started to pull out, there's a vacant space. And this argument says, some sufferings come out of the vacant space. That's the second kind. And there in the vacant space, there is no divinity, as it were. Therefore, those difficulties that come from there, since they possess the aspect called vacant space, it is impossible in any way to find an answer for them. Amen, Sela. I'm ready to close the lesson right there. That is powerful, powerful theology for me. That's Auschwitz right there. There is no answer for that one. Go back to 175, because we're going to look at, right, at Padaya's unpacking of that. We ended at the sentence, language remains even if it's broken in our first example, right? In contrast... The second paradise, I mean, the second paradigm is that of tzimtzum, of a contracting of God towards the edges, which leaves a vacancy. It is connected to trauma and terrible tragedies in which a separation is produced. This means an absolute separation. On the one hand, in its isolation of the tragic event, it preserves the possibility of existence. This happened once. It happened in this year, on this date. It's kind of 
encapsulated in time. It's a singularity. It happened once. It had a beginning and an end. So there's this possibility of existence, of a shard, of shardness, I should say. And on the other hand, it contracts the forms of the continuation of existence. It challenges the very forms of the continuation of existence. Antimatter. For those of you who love science, and I'm a science fiction fan, antimatter. Right? Something that can, the only thing that can really like suck matter into being not matter, nothing. In the paradigm of breakdown, the first one we talked about, the remains of the collapse are still within reach. Perhaps they scratch, hurt, and wound custody battles, right? Your partner, your ex drives by the house repeatedly. She's hanging out with what she do. They wound, but they are still present within the range of the extended arm of the falling person. And concurrently, all that flows from the break, from that disintegration, from that collapse, are things that can be understood. They are things that can be repaired. They can be grasped. There is a chance that the mind can attain and conceptualize them. And the paradigm of tzimtzum, the traumatic event forms a ring of emptiness and absence of the divine. Oh, sorry, I jumped down a paragraph. No, I didn't, did I? A ring of emptiness and absence. The lasuna is connected to the experience of the absolute absence of the divine as a type of experience of absence and not as an intellectual controversy. That shouldn't have happened to me, but it did. And how could they do that to me? I trusted them now. And what's that going to mean for my future relationships? And what's that going to mean for my financial future? And how am I going to raise my kids? And what does that mean for what I thought their futures were going to be? Right? That is all um, intellectual controversy, right? Kind of a dissonance between what I thought was going to be and what now isn't, or who I thought I was and now I'm not. The emptiness that is created at the moment when God takes a step back any tragedy that comes from that place is in principle impossible to understand. It is connected to the Hasidic riddle of the existence of a place devoid of God. And there is no possibility of understanding it. Congenital disability, death at a young age, collective disasters, unbounded evil of one person to another. This type of disaster and horror causes, as many studies of trauma have shown, the opening of a kind of hole in the system, the emergence of a lasuna inaccessible to the mind. So is, uh, is the author suggesting that when people are in crisis, that in some way we can imagine them as being placed sort of on the boundary of that empty spot in the middle. They're sort of on the edge of the circle. Inside or outside? No, no, they're on the, on the circle. They're on the circle. They're right here on the they're edge? Right there, and now they're in their moment of crisis. They, have a, they essentially have a choice 
between do I go to the community and the world to help with my repair, or do I turn inwards and cut myself off from the rest of the world and fall sort of further and further down the rabbit hole? I'm going to suggest that the author is reinterpreting Nachman of Bratislav's image of breakage and apikorsut, disbelief, into trauma. That's the first step she makes. She, and she, she admits that. She's, she's talking in terms of trauma and suffering and knowing that that's maybe not what Nachman meant, but knowing his life, which is why I started with that, maybe it can't be far from his understanding of whatever. Um, I think what she's saying is the individual is by definition of what happens to them either here or here by definition of what happens to them, not their choice. If they had their mother go into the ovens in Auschwitz, they are here. If they had the death of a child, they are inside this circle by definition of the trauma itself. It is devoid of divinity. It is devoid of a response. It is devoid of understanding at all by the community. We're going to get to how the community can address it. I'm not saying community can't address it. The person doesn't choose. It's defined by the experience of there are no words, there are no letters, there are no shards. It all disintegrated. Over here is stuff on, on any of the on any part of the, you know, the circle outside of there is suffering, trauma, breakage, that there's still material to work with to try to say, even though that happened to me, I choose, maybe we can use that language, to figure out how to pick up those pieces and rearrange them into a new piece that is not going to be a vase that holds water exactly, but might be a lovely statue or might be pieces that I put on the outside of a pot that holds a plant and it can still be beautiful it's broken the pieces are broken which is I don't pull this out of nowhere like I keep all my broken plates and I break a lot of them um and I keep them because I think they can be rearranged right into a table into I keep promising myself Millie you'll help me someday figure it out right how to actually do it um into stepping stones they it can be something beautiful it isn't going to be a plate anymore it can be something else. The, the author is reading into Nachman of Bratislav's piece a very, I think, important theological approach to suffering and trauma. There are two very different kinds. They're not unrelated. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, I, because this is not Brett's lover theology. Part of it is, but that's about apikorsut. Padaya is going to the place. Chaviva Padaya is saying, let's, let's, let's step away from the language of heresy. And because of Nachman's life and his own sufferings, what if he's really talking about the crisis of belief that comes in the wake of trauma and suffering? She's saying, what if? And I think it's a beautiful way, not just beautiful, it's an important way to read it and an important answer to the people who say, well, Rabbi, their souls needed to move to a higher vibration. 
because what, what he, let's go to his suggestion about how, to, how do we deal with the two different kinds of trauma? Because it isn't like you can't deal with this one. You can. People survive the Holocaust and go on to live rich, oh, thank you, rich and productive, joyful lives. Some don't live such rich and joyful lives, but they go on and they build other things. It's not that you don't exist past here, but, he, but there's going to be a suggestion about what one does with one kind of trauma and what one does with another kind of trauma, which I think is hugely respectful of what you were talking about. And then we can talk about for us, all right, what does that mean about my choices? So, so go in, in, to... Um, Mm-hmm. 172. Yeah. Inaccessible to the mind. So we're going to flip over to 176. Is, is anyone else hot or am I just moving around a lot? I'm just moving around a lot. Okay. And I'm 50 years old. Here's the other thing that I understand to be happening. Okay. 176. <laughs> what? Diane? It's inclusive of everything. That, that emptiness, that one, the one in the center, it's not necessarily brought by trauma, but that. The dark night of the soul is always about trauma and suffering, always. Always. It doesn't have to be brought on by it, but it is always about suffering. The dark night of the soul is by definition that time where we're reaching. We don't, we don't trust anything. We don't believe. We don't know. We're, we're in agony of some kind or else it's not the dark night of the soul. It's just a bad day, right? I'm not being flip. I'm being like, the dark night of the soul as I understand it are those times where we truly feel eclipsed. That is always related to some kind of suffering, the question is, which one? Right. This strikes me as an effort to deal with, I think philosophers call it the problem of evil. That's right. Evil in That's the right. If God is good and God is everywhere. That's right. And this is a, kind of an explanation for how that can exist. That's right. Can exist. That's exactly right. All right, so come down to 176, that middle paragraph started at therefore without denying. You see that paragraph? Go to the sentence that says, if the breakdown, if the breakdown is a catastrophe or trauma, it is accessible, it is an accessible trauma which can be treated and approached and conceptualized to put the break back together. If so, it is also possible to apply speech to it. So if we're dealing with one of those breakages, one of those traumas that we talked about, the shards are on the floor, you can talk to somebody and say, wow, that sounds pretty horrible. Tell, tell me what that feels like. Wow. So sadness. That, when, when have you felt sadness like that before? Right? You can talk about it. You can start addressing the pieces and figure out now where are they going to go. They're going to go different. It's not going to be a vase that holds water anymore. But if we're going to make, you know, a, a table, where would you place that piece now in the mosaic of your life as it is right now, right? There, there's language. There's ways to talk about it. However, the vacant space 
is a lacuna that dwells in the heart of the traumatic event. It is absolute emptiness. From the viewpoint of the traumatized person, in this case, there are no words in her mouth. And there is no capacity to testify to a horror beyond words. Specifically, the excess of dread or the terror, the shock, and the evil to which the traumatized person is exposed is grasped and experienced as lack. Utter, these are my words, lack. Absolute emptiness that is beyond words and with which words have no contact. The sufferer is doomed in silence. It, that's not the end of it. We're not, it's not going to end there. Don't worry. Right? Just, just, but that's the, that's, the, that's the experience of the sufferer. Is they're doomed in silence because there's no words. There's no idea. There's no concept. There's no language. There's no way to begin to express the horror. It is experienced as a complete obliteration, if you will, of reality, including the reality of language. In reading or listening about PTSD sufferers, the way I was raised in psychological you know, circles and, and healing circles, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not in any way making light but and like all of our wisdom that we knew exactly what we were, like everybody knew what they were doing was you make us work through the event. No matter how horrible, you have to work through it or you're suppressing it. If you don't go back and revisit it and talk about it and put it in language and relive it and talk about what that was, la, 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 and unpack it, then you're shoving it down and you're denying it and it's going to come out sideways somewhere else. Now with PTSD research, what they're showing is that continues to traumatize the brain. PTSD sufferers do not benefit from revisiting the trauma all those people who shoved it into a dark closet and went on and made lives for themselves, guess what? They weren't in denial, it turns out. I mean, unless they're doing one thing in public and going home and beating their children. I'm, I'm not saying they were all, everyone who presented as fine was. But it turns out that the ability to shut certain things off and move on is really healing for the brain, which is very resilient, particularly in cases where there are no shards. There's nothing to work with. There's no language and there's no point in talking. And there's certainly no point in going back and reliving because it builds a super highway of memory back to the traumatic event, as it turns out. And I was one of the people who said, you have to like go there, you have to address your pain, you have to face it, right? I bought it. This predates all of that by how long, right? Every time we're ready to write off this stuff as having nothing to do with modern science or nothing to do with us here is for me, deep and powerful teaching out of deep wisdom from a man who struggled, a man of faith, of of deep religious faith who struggled. I'm ready to listen to him. And I think he has a lot 
here. And, and of course, it's translated through the brilliance of um, our scholar, Padaya, you know, who, who wants to take it to the level of trauma, which I think is really helpful, or evil, or suffering, what, whatever language we want to use for that. I want to encourage you to feel free to find your own language for this and to feel free to say, you know what? Jewish tradition has been exposed to suffering and trauma for a really long time. And it has some things to say. And if something's presented to you that feels like spiritual cotton candy, their souls needed to move to a higher vibration. Right? You can feel free to use your language, whatever it is, to quote, I think, what is deep wisdom here. Right? Like, whatever you're about to say to me about how you want to deal with this is you needing to deal with this. Ultimately, there's nothing to say about the killing fields. There's nothing to say about ethnic cleansing. There's nothing to say about murdering people for the color of their skin or their sexual orientation or fill in the blank. The horrors are how many? There's nothing to say. Don't talk to me about it. Because the real spiritual teaching here is that there is no language and there's no justification that has anything to do with theology that, that we would look to according to this teaching. Right. Any questions or comments to this point? Thank you. You're always pushing me to the next level, the next point, and the next, right? Always pushing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to have such a thoughtful and generous and present student to push. I love that. That is the next place to go. So what do you do? What do we do with that? Right? Right? 177. You know what? Actually, we're not going to go there. We're going to go to uh, 178, maybe. <laughs> let, me, let me read. Yeah, 178, second paragraph. In this place, that's this, the one we're talking about, the deep trauma, or the, you know, the one of silence, no words. In this place, pens are broken and words are halted. There is such suffering that the effort to explain and explicate it with theological terms itself shatters any theology. Religion often earns contempt for itself when it tries to explain things that, by definition, are impossible to explain or touch. We can only be silent or conceptualize the pain and the abyss itself to speak about the gap. Sometimes the gap can be as narrow as a hair, and sometimes it can seem like the ocean. (coughs) So one approach look at 179, is to stay in that sense of silence. 179, second paragraph. There is an area of silence within the injured person, in this category, not the other category, in this category, which we must bypass cautiously and on tiptoe. Rabbi Nachman suggests that we should not endeavor to make silence into speech that we should recognize the refusal or the non-susceptibility to verbalization and transmute the nonverbal force into music. 
Both music and silence are wordless situations. But music touches upon the emptiness. It brings with it metaphysical solace. So, so drop down, and we, let's keep going because I was going to unpack it, but there it is more beautifully unpacked than I could do it. Go down to the paragraph that begins the healer. Yes? The healer identifies the hole in existence that was opened with which he struggles. And his task is to soothe the suffering of tzimtzum, you know, this withdrawal, to help as much as possible in sorting out the subjective from the objective, to help in processing and transforming the whole into nothingness, and to make it possible to give means for conceptualizing the emptiness. Uh, where, where am I looking? Uh, there was some place where, like, all right, I don't know. Um, I should have not gone that far. Okay, so. There's two responses. I, I think she is reading Nachman on purpose to suggest. Silence. And music. Read, please. One seventy nine second paragraph, is that where you are, Thea? Music and the power, only music, right, can enter the realm of the others, capital O, horrible pain. The place of the breakdown that is not capable of simple consolation to the distortion that cannot be set right or the lack that cannot be reckoned. The one who as a teacher or a physician can bring with her the healing melody is also the one who knows how to be silent with the sufferer, to bring silence that is like a kind of music. I was asked on a panel at Cedars, this huge Jewish journal, this huge panel, and, and the question was, what do you say, Rabbi, to people who are diagnosed as terminal? What do you say to them when you counsel them, when you sit with them, when they're diagnosed or as they're approaching the end? As a, and, like, of course, that question makes me go, what do I say to them? What do I say to them? What do I say to them? And I panicked because I'm in front of a lot of people. And I started to panic. What do I say to them? What do I, what do I, and I just realized, what do I say to them? <laughs> There's nothing to say to them. I sit with them. And what I answered, which is, I think, an answer in a way of silence, is I say to them, you will not walk through this alone. I am here, we are here, and you will not walk this path alone if you don't want to. That is all I can say to them, which I think is saying, I will be here and shut up. Because there's nothing to say. When you walk into a house of mourning, when you walk into a shiva house, what's the traditional practice? Does anyone know? You walk in the door and what do you do? You are supposed to walk in and what? And sit down and shut up. You can respond, says Reuben, to the more. You don't talk. 
When we usually walk into a bedside, a hospital, a whatever, a trauma situation, what do we do? Oh, how can I? And we start asking all kinds of questions. Not because we're bad people, but because we want to do something. We want to fix it. We want to make it better. We want to help. Oh, don't we? Because we can help. In a Shiva house, our tradition understands the deep wisdom of this teaching. When someone you love is gone, all the more so. Kavachomer if it's by horror. All the more so if it's by murder, by abuse, by something horrific that someone did to someone else. There's nothing to say. You walk in, and that's considered a loving act. That you're showing up is not like, oh, don't say anything because you're... It's considered a loving thing that you come, and you walk in, and you come in, and you sit down, and you wait in silence to read the signal of the one who's in the place devoid of words. And if they talk, you respond. And if they don't, you sit in silence. Another response that we get in this teaching, which I think is really amazing also, is music. As my father was dying, he was no longer responsive, but they told me, and I trusted them, that hearing's the last sense to go. The things still seem to register, as we know from people who come back from comas and come back from near-death experiences or actual dying experiences and are brought back to life. They heard all the way until they were on the other side of things. And so I remember, how do you pick music for your father to die to? And I knew that was the only thing to do. Not that silence would have been inappropriate. I think this, it, this is true. It would have been fine. And talking, like, didn't, after the second day of vigil of him dying, talking felt like I've said absolutely everything there is to say. I've told him he can go. I've, you know, whatever he's about. Music felt really natural, actually. Choosing it was weird. My relationship to those CDs remains complicated. It felt really right that there was music that I knew he would love in that space. When we sing as an offering, you know how many people say to those of us who are musical when they're suffering, would you please sing me that song? Right? It, it, don't talk to me. <laughs> right? Like, just be with me. And the way I would really love for you to be with me right now is to sing with me. I grew up in the South, as some of you may know. And in the Afri- African-American tradition in the South... It is all about the power of music to reach into deep suffering and to not try to assuage it, not try to answer it, not try to fix it, but to enter deep suffering and express it and address it in ways that are not about the words. I mean, the words are involved, obviously. Meditation, where we recite syllables over and over. It's just something for us to hold as another way in to this addressing of things that words won't work for, concepts won't work for. Something I wish actually we did more of is sing our way, chant our way, 
into other kinds of spaces. You just made my week, Reuben. That is really, like, what an amazing thing that we start with these texts that are really hard, really esoteric, really, wow, what? And that you're willing to be here for this amount of time to explore what they might mean. I I cannot tell you how honored I am to be with a group of people who are willing to give it that kind of time and thought. And then we come out to the place of going, wow, now that I go back and read that text... It actually says something to me that there's nothing better. In my world, we're going to close on page 180 because Reuben just made my night. We can close now. <laughs> Sometimes, with corrective guidance, we discover that in being human, we have attributed too much of our suffering to situations of absolute blockage. But if we expand our relation toward them, we will discover that they can, they can be seen as a breakdown and not as tsimtsum. We expand the demand that pain and suffering require of us to develop, to process the remains, our cry of despite everything, against the emptiness, we will grow stronger and we will be aware of growth. So the invitation of our teacher at the end of explicating this text is to say, There is absolutely this kind of absolute absence of any kind of talking about anything because it's absolute evil. Absolutely. And too often, we're ready to attribute our suffering to that kind rather than the kind where there's something smashed on the floor. And the invitation is, can we just sit and be patient and maybe even, I would say, be hopeful enough to hope there are shards on the floor. Because if there are shards on the floor, we can make a table. Like there, we can change. We can transform. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be fun. But there's something to work with. There's something to move right to the next place. If we're ready to attribute it all to that black hole, there's nothing to do with that. And that's real. She's not denying that that's not real, but let's not be too quick. Let's really do the work of discernment and of therapy and of walking with friends and talking and crying and sitting in hot baths of Epsom salts with essential oils um, and writing on the mirror afterwards. Too much information. Um, To like really begin to explore, are there pieces here for me to to work with and, and... and put back together in a different kind of way that will actually be about my growth and about my transformation. And whichever one it is, we ask for loving community and friends and family and the divine sometimes and the best part of ourselves to really show up and be present. Let us commit as a community to doing that for each other and for anyone who needs it so that at least... What we know is we can be there and sit in silence and hold one another and be witnesses to the amazing capacity 
to survive even that hole at the center. Can you hear it, son? May it be us living into the divine will within each one of us to make it so.